So welcome to a Life Worth Living podcast uh, with Dr. Foyer. Our podcast is sponsored by Lifesavers Emergency Room. We have an awesome guest today, Dr. Todd Anthony Worley. Uh, Dr. Worley is a bariatric surgeon. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Foyer. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I've uh, been looking forward to this. Tell us a little bit about how you um, came to be a bariatric surgeon um, and your path toward this. So... I, um, I'm going to tell it in reverse order because I think that's how it happened in my mind. Right. And, and looking back things that happen to you in your life that impact you, that you don't even know they impact you until that impact has taken place. Right. A little bit about me. I'm originally from a small town close to Houston called Cleveland, Texas. And, um, it's tiny. Yeah, lived my whole life there with my parents, and I went to college at Texas A&M University, graduated there, then went to medical school in San Antonio at the University of Texas Med School there. And then after that, I moved up to Chicago for my general surgery residency, and I spent five years there and really loved it. I went to a a private program through St. Joseph Hospital, uh, really Loved it, got a lot of hands-on. And uh, so during that time, and I'll I'll start back with my journey, as I moved into medical school, I thought I was going to be a pediatrician uh, or maybe even an ER physician. I wasn't sure, right? And so I did my first rotation in medical school, which was psychiatry. And actually, uh, I did pretty well in psychiatry. Uh, And I always think that's funny for a surgeon to say that. Uh, but I really am someone who I, I really love all fields of medicine and uh, could have fun doing almost anything. But I did psychiatry rotation first, loved it, thought this is what I'm going to do. You know, I'm not going to be an ER physician or pediatrician anymore. I'm going to be a psychiatrist. Yeah. And uh, then I moved on to my OBGYN residency. Well, guess what? I love that too. And I thought, I'm going to be an OBGYN. This is fantastic. I love it. Now there are procedures, there's clinic. I mean, you get the best of all worlds. Bring life into the world. Right? Yeah, you're bringing life in the world. It's, very, it's mostly positive interactions, right? And, and then I did my general surgery rotation. And I rotated with Dr. Ashraf Helmi uh, and, uh, down in, in Harlingen, down in the valley, uh, very south uh, in Texas. Uh, and he had the most unique practice. Um, this man did bariatric surgery, vascular surgery, thoracic surgery, general surgery. Not only did he do it, he did it really well. And I think even as a med student, you start to understand quality and, and how well someone works right away, even by the conscientious nature of how they make their decisions. And, um, I was with him for six weeks. It was really nice, almost as close as you can get to an apprenticeship in some ways. And so I asked, hey, can I spend the next six weeks with him too? So I did six more weeks and thought, wow, this this amount, this, this variety, this uh, scope of practice, this is what I need. Because I'm a person, I really enjoy variety. 
and I never liked anything better for me. That was the pinnacle. So I knew then I thought, okay, surgery is what it is. You know, fast forward to my general surgery residency. Um, I really had exposure to some of my great mentors. Uh, Mark Connolly is probably the chief uh, mentor and he's a surgical oncologist. And um, I mean, there's something so fulfilling and so rewarding about excising cancer from someone's body. And so that was really where my heart was uh, as I thought about that. And so I was doing my general surgery residency and I planned to do a fellowship. And so far I know what people have to be thinking, when is the bariatric surgery part coming? Right, and so even for me, it hadn't come at that point. And so, so surgical oncology, I interviewed for fellowships and, you know, and I found, and it's changed very much now, but they weren't doing as much minimally invasive surgery as I would have liked. So it didn't feel, I mean, the, their thoughts and their processes and their research was very cutting edge at all of these programs. Um, but they weren't doing much in the way of minimally invasive surgery. And it's really shifted now. But at that time, I thought, you know, it's it's really hard to think about doing a, a fellowship where some of the technical advances like robotics and laparoscopy were not employed completely. What what did the minimally invasive aspect, why did that appeal to you so much? What, what about it kind of drew your attention that this is where I want to be, this kind of technology? Well, and that's that's a great thought because I think that transition for when surgeons really went from open surgery to almost all laparoscopy, I felt that shift during my training. And you could kind of foretell the, suit, the, the future that, hey, if you can have your surgery done with tiny incisions versus a really large, long, painful incision, why wouldn't you, right? And you could see, you could read the you can read the tea leaves, if you will, and say, hey, this is where things are going. Um, and so my actually my backup plan was doing this minimally invasive surgery fellowship. And uh, and then all of a sudden I it came to me, no, this is not my backup plan. This is my plan. That was my my plan A at that point. And I did my interviews and I ended up matching with the University of Texas program in Houston. And and I mean, you could count on one or two hands the number of people that were doing robotics at that time. And and now, I mean, you probably hear about it quite frequently even. But um, yeah, and so we, were, we started, I started that fellowship up, we're doing robotics. I'm like, this is okay, this is great. This is cutting edge. But almost all of our surgeries were bariatric surgery. And in my head, I'm thinking, you know what? This is great, I'll learn these techniques and I'll do surgical oncology. Well. Guess what? I started to fall in love with that practice and that art of weight loss surgery. And there was something about watching someone lose 100, 150, 200 pounds and that change that it brings into their life. That had, it was the same fulfillment that you could feel when you remove cancer from someone's body to have that much of an impact or to see their diabetes, we'll say, go into remission or their hypertension, I'll also say it in that way, go into remission. Uh, it was so fulfilling. And that shift happened in that year. And I said, this is, this is what I want to do with my life. 
And, uh, and so it was really, uh, it was a, amazing to me because one of the things that looking back, it probably didn't hit me even until I was five or six years into my practice. I, uh, suffered from and struggled with childhood obesity, uh, for a large portion of my childhood. And I can't help but think that that was back there all along okay. thinking, wow, yeah. okay, I can really help somebody and I have a personal connection here. So that's my story. Wow. Wow. So you went like full circle, honestly, because you gained all the skills and then realized, oh, this is, this is actually what I'm meant to be doing. Right. Yeah. So do, do a lot of the patients who come to you, are they already, do, do they already know like, this is what I want? Or are they still a little bit on the fence? Do you feel like you're having to kind of pitch it to them or do they already come with their pamphlets? Like, Hey, doc, give me this. That's such an interesting question. And I will say that when I ask patients, when they come in, one of my first questions is, well, how long have you been thinking about doing this? You know, cause I'm trying to gauge where they are. The most common answer is two years. So imagine, I mean, two years to think about this and not only think about it, you know, they're on the computer, Google, they, I mean, they know a lot when they come in, they're very well educated about what uh, they're thinking of undergoing and doing and, uh, and they've researched you, me, right. And they, they know where they're going before they get there. And so I will say probably 50% of the people that come in, they know, and they would have had their surgery yesterday, right? They're just, they're ready. They know everything they need to know. And I think the other half are still in that investigational mode where they're, they're just seeking out information and, uh, and the wrinkle, you know, in 2023 is how many more options we have for weight loss medication. Um, and I think it's very interesting because it's brought those options even more to the forefront to say, Hey, people who are suffering from the disease of obesity, there's something we can do about it, you know, and not just something, many things we can do about it. Do you, are most of your patients female or male? Um, and also what age range do you find, um, you know, walking into your office? Yeah, it's a nice mix. Um, it does lean toward female. There are more women that come in uh, than men, but it's it's a really uh, nice mix. Um, and certainly you can theorize about why that is, but the age range, I will say we've done it from 18 to 75. 75? I know, I know, which seems like, you know, I think, when you hear that, and even I remember when the first 75 year old came in, I thought, I, you know, I don't know that I'm not sure how I feel about that, but then you meet them and you get a sense of their energy, their health status. And I will say, I don't think I would even cap it necessarily at 75. Um, because it's case by case, if someone's healthy enough for surgery and they want to do it and, you know, and they feel like they have, more years to live and, and they want to take charge of their health. Hey, you know, I mean, at least I can think to myself, okay, if this is safe and they want to do this, you know, at least I know I'll do a great job for them and pull, put my heart into it and my mind and, uh, and, and get a good outcome. 
It's so awesome to talk to you, honestly, because, you know, we all go into medicine with this dream and this idea of what we want to do and just to see you living it and being able to see your patients transformed, not the same day, but, you know, you get to watch it. And that's that's got to be incredibly rewarding. Um, Every day is like the biggest loser in my clinic, really. Like you watch that television program and you see those transformations and they walk through the paper and they're you know, they've transformed. You said it, that's the best word. And so every day feels like that. I mean, just this morning, I saw someone six months out who had lost 85 pounds just since surgery and even almost a hundred overall since they started their journey with us. Now I will say that doesn't happen to everyone. That is, that is a far outlier, but she's healthy. She's feeling great. I mean, just changed her outlook. I mean, she's 28 years old. She has a lot of life left to live. And so, I mean, we see that every day, you know, that is definitely um, probably an extreme version of uh, what my practice is like. I think there are very few clinics that take patients that are that heavy, right? Um, that have struggled with obesity and reached that point. And, uh, and not only there are very few that take them, there are probably very few that should because at those weights, the risk is incredibly high. And so while we don't have a limit, I would say most of our patients uh, range from the 200s to 400 pound range, even though our, I mean, our uh, places, our hospital is a center of excellence certainly we can we won't say no to anyone at this point and i think you know when we see someone come in that is reaching those extreme weights you know similar to what i've heard they do on the show yeah we're going to work with them to try and bring that weight down to a safer weight and try to bring down that surgical risk um so no we we don't say no to anyone and i think if someone comes in with those extreme weights a place like that where you see on that show that that hospital and that practice or a practice like ours i mean that's the place those are the places you want to go because they're concerned about optimization and creating safety if probably a much wider range that's the way i would say it how do you how do you prepare how or how do pa patients um get prepared for surgery do most of them um do some um meetings with a therapist for, to kind of get to the heart of their potential eating disorder? Or is that something you guys kind of talk to them about? Do they need to lose a little bit of weight before? Do they get on medications? Like what's that process before you even, you know, before you get to get an OR date? That is partially mandated typically by whatever insurance a patient has and partially mandated by sort of what we do and how we think about optimization prior to surgery. And so um, all patients will, whether their insurance requires it or not, or whether they're even going outside of insurance where, you know, they're not mandated by an insurance company to do any sort of uh, formal preoperative uh, testing or clearance, we have everyone see a dietitian at least one time and depending on the insurance, it may be anywhere from one time, once a month for two months or three months. And some insurances even go as high as six or 12 months. Um, 
even uh, some plans don't mandate that preparation in months, but in number of visits. Like for instance, there's one that will say, you have to have 12 preparatory visits. And those usually are a combination of um, seeing a dietitian uh, that may range from one to 12 visits. The psychologist, typically the insurance will mandate a psychology visit at least once prior to surgery. And for us, I think, you know, when we're thinking about the heart of an eating disorder or something in that realm that may be affecting a patient, you know, it just depends on where they are. If someone is a, a longstanding relationship with a psychiatrist or a psychologist, we want input from them. I mean, they know this patient very well. And so not only would we have them see a, a sort of bariatric specific um, uh, counselor or psychologist, we would want input from their personal psychologist as well. And so, and then we will have them start to work um, on becoming more active. They'll see an exercise physiologist. We'll usually um, get some sort of clearance, uh, whether it's from a cardiologist or another specialist, depending on the patient's health. We typically give them a weight loss goal. It's not mandated, but we like to see a little bit of progress in that direction. Um, and it may be as small as three to five pounds, but just something to give them some guidance uh, and get them going on the right track. Um, we won't do this for anyone who is a current smoker that we they have to quit smoking in our practice for at least six weeks before we'll do it. Can you explain why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, particularly smoking brings on a, a, it's a modifiable risk factor, right? And so patients that smoke have higher complication rates when it comes to infection, when it comes to leaking from a staple line or a suture line, um, and things like that can be extremely dangerous. And so if we have this modifiable risk factor that we can change and we can do something about, okay, then why wouldn't we do that if we could optimize? And even I'll say the um, number one preventable cause of death in America, well, we'll say the number two first is obesity. Um, number one is smoking. So I think, all right, if you're making changes for your health, let's go all the way, you know, so those are my thoughts behind it. help them with like uh, with nicotine patches to kind of get them off to because the I guess their dependence on the yeah and it's oh well so that's a, even a great point that you bring in because really part of that risk is determined by the nicotine itself and so yeah so if we whatever we can do get them plugged in with their primary care provider um, someone that can help them. Um, uh, maybe with uh, prescription medication to help them as they come off of that uh, and try to break that habit. Um, yeah, we want to work with them and help them and not not just say, go do it. That's always hard. And I feel like that about weight. Sometimes physicians will tell a patient, hey, you know, the only thing you need to do is lose some weight. And the in, end of sentence, end of story. And I think, well, but did they give you any help or guidance? No, no, they just told me I need to lose. Well, okay you know what, that's what my practice is for. So um, if if patients come to that point in their conversation with a doctor, okay, well, let's pick up that conversation. And, and that's what my practice does. Um, and I'll say not just with surgery, um, really, we want to see anyone who's suffering from overweight and obesity. Um, we want to help really, whether that's with medications, um, and there's so many new powerful meds out there, 
surgery, which is so powerful. Um, and then always keeping as our foundation these, we'll say, pillars of um, thinking about how a patient eats, you know, um, what they put into their body, um, how active they are, what kind of movement they get, how they manage their stress, uh, which can have an Im a big impact on someone's attempt at losing weight. And even, believe it or not, how someone sleeps. Um, so we think about those pillars and trying to do what we can with prioritization, of course, but to say, okay, how can we help in these areas to give you a good foundation on your journey? So I would love to talk about eligibility because I've, I've talked to people who are, you know, overweight, but I wouldn't, I don't think, you know, I wouldn't say they're in the obese category who are in, and they're interested in, you know, um, surgery or bariatric surgery because they're just tired of trying to get their weight in the normal values. They've just been overweight all their life, but not quite, you know, they're not quite overweight enough for anyone to you know so i mean what what is the criteria what yeah what? yeah and and we can be pretty exact with that even yeah. though the measurement system is not perfect and maybe somewhat uh i'll go ahead and say archaic uh but it's called bmi or body mass index which is a a formula uh that that takes a person's height and weight and calculates a number and the part where it works is typically the higher the BMI goes, the higher the risk for medical problems, right? The higher the risk of all-cause mortality. Okay, so we can go there. Um, where it breaks down is um, it only looks at height. And so to say everyone at a certain height needs to be at least in the same weight range sometimes doesn't make sense because there are other things, whether it's gender, uh, how muscular someone is, um, what kind of lean body mass they have. Um, those things will make a big difference, but it's what insurance companies use. It's the common language amongst the bariatric surgery practices to say, all right, BMI is kind of what would get someone in the door or um, or opens that door for them to start thinking about that. So um, BMI of 40 or higher, typically no other requirements are necessary um, from, let's say, uh, an insurance standpoint for a person to qualify. Mm -hmm. Then we take the BMI between 35 and 40, and usually they have to have one associated comorbidity uh, or obesity-related comorbidity. And what would those be? Um, the most common, diabetes, hypertension or high blood pressure, uh, high cholesterol, uh, sleep apnea. Um, those are the most common that we'll see. And so really, if you're at a 35, you're someone who could start thinking about it um, because sometimes people have uh, obesity-related comorbidities that just haven't been investigated yet, whether that's fatty liver, which can count in there and is becoming much more prominent. Um, so fatty liver disease. Um, interestingly, um, uh, for some patients, um, they're starting, some insurances are starting to lower that BMI requirement to 32. And, um, and I think that's particularly important when we face such a, um, a pervasive disease like diabetes, 
right? To, to be able to think about that um, and to treat more people is extremely important. And, um, and so, uh, but it's not, that's not across the board yet. I don't think you could say that, but there are some that are starting to think that way. And I think we're going to see a shift maybe. And, and my hope personally would be that those numbers come down to 30 to 35 with one comorbidity and then above 35 to take all comers. Um, Medicare is a slightly different. They um, will say the BMI has to be 35 and you have to have two obesity related comorbidities. And, um, and that they get very specific about how those comorbidities count. For instance, if you have hypertension, they say you have to be on three medications for that comorbidity or, or illness to count as one of your two. It can be tough. It's, it can be challenging to know all of the ins and outs. And I think uh, the one correction, I think at 32.5 is the lowest I've seen it. So just to clarify, your practice not only does bariatric surgery, but you also help with um, medication-assisted therapy. That's right. That's correct. Yeah, we we would say anyone struggling with overweight or obesity, we will see them. And I think that is so much more important now than ever because we have a lot of options. But even really thinking about um, obesity as a disease or as a chronic disease, um, which is how we've been thinking about it in our practice for so many years. But I think now um, more and more people are starting to think of that to say, okay, it's not just one surgery and you're set for life, right? Because then you think, well, what happens to people and what are their options if they have surgery and then they regain weight? And, and you'll talk to many people and they'll say, um, oh, I know someone who had the surgery and they just regained the weight. Partly they'll say that with some judgment, you know, and, uh, and that's hard um, because there are a lot of people who equate that disease with a willpower issue, cosmetic issues, right? But I think when you learn it's, you learn it's a disease, when you take two people who are the same height, they may eat the exact same things. One struggles with their weight and the other doesn't. There's something in their wiring in their genetic makeup and their coding that gives them a, a predisposition to gain weight that just makes it easier to gain and, and harder to lose than maybe that other person who eats the exact same food. And I will throw out, it doesn't mean that person, even though they don't struggle with weight, it doesn't mean they're healthy, but they're just not struggling with that disease. And the other way that I see it so easily as a disease is, how do you explain it? Sometimes when people are working so hard and they can't lose or they have surgery and they do so great for a few years and then they regain, you start to see that, okay, there's something in the way that, that some there. people are wired that, that predisposes them for something like that. Can we talk a little bit about the surgeries? Cool. Um, before it was all gastric bypass, um, but now I, you know, there, there's so many, uh, I mean, um, how many are, how many options are there as far as surgical? We'll say a solid four. Right. There's one that's almost phased out. So okay. you can say five and there's maybe one that is, I will say people are a little bit on the fence about, about at least in the U S. Um, and so, so maybe even as many as six. So let's, we'll go through them. The lap band, uh, was around in the early two thousands. I think, you know, I always cut the lap band some slack 
because when it came out, you really had two options, really, lap band and gastric bypass. And so if you were someone who didn't really want a gastric bypass, but you knew you had to do something, you didn't have all of these incredibly powerful medications, you maybe chose a lap band. And so in some ways, I'm like, kudos to them for taking a step, you know, still. Um, but I think we've found out over time that is not the solution for everyone, for sure. And, uh, and maybe the people that that works for, it's such a small group that's hard to predict. That's probably not the best option. It's um, you restrict people's food intake, but you don't affect those hormones as strongly that turn off hunger and, and the way that they sense their fullness. And is such that, you know, you can't eat as much, but you're hungry. So eventually, intuitively, humans are wired to find a way around that. And it is the easiest one to cheat. And I think in the long run, it is the one that probably has the most issues in terms of people having terrible reflux and vomiting and um, the band can slip and it can erode. So really, I don't, I don't know any of my colleagues who are still putting those in. I think it's because we had better options. And the next one up would be the sleeve gastrectomy, where we remove about 75% of the stomach proper. And I will say, just a plug, uh, a lot of patients will hear me say stomach, and they think I'm talking about the whole abdomen. No, I'm meaning just the organ, the stomach, which is inside the abdomen hole. So we remove you know, a large portion of that, and that has a very strong hormonal effect it also has a very strong mechanical effect. You just eat less because your stomach is smaller. But because that one was so strong, I think it really took the lion's share of the patients who were getting bands and even pulled a lot of the share of patients who were getting the gastric bypass because it is really a powerful tool. Then if we're climbing that ladder of complexity, there's gastric bypass. There's also mini gastric bypass which really isn't covered by insurance now. And I think it's had a harder time finding acceptance in the US. It's definitely bigger in Europe, um, but has not caught on so much in the US. Um, and I think the thought that is out there would say, well, why not just get a gastric bypass? What do you gain from the mini gastric bypass? And, and I would say I, I fall in that, but a gastric bypass, um, we don't remove anything like the sleeve where we actually take that portion of the stomach out. We divide the stomach into two parts. You have a, the upper part, the pouch where the food collects, but now that's been divided from the lower part of the stomach. And then we pull up a portion of your intestine and connect it to that pouch, that upper stomach, so that the food has a way to progress. And then in effect, we are skipping or bypassing, right? part of the intestine and stomach. That's the next part. You will reconnect sort of the outlet all of, of all that you bypassed further downstream. And uh, so, yeah, because you still need those digestive enzymes um, from the stomach, from the liver, from the pancreas. And so we want all of that to reach the continuity of the food, but we kind of separate that process for the early part of digestion and then in the latter part of digestion, they come together so you can still absorb uh, most everything you need. I mean, all of our patients take vitamins um, just to be sure that we're accounting for some things that they may not be getting as much of or may not be as uh, readily able to absorb. Um, I think people worry more 
than they should even uh, about uh, malnourishment with a gastric bypass um, because uh, really it is easy to get everything that you need uh, with a gastric bypass. And I think the, the issue that you just have to wrestle with is, you know, how okay are you with having your intestines rerouted um, as opposed to removing part of your stomach? Is the recovery about the same for the sleeve gastrectomy versus? Interestingly, yeah, very similar, very similar. And then we have probably our last two options, the more traditional version of which is called the duodenal switch with biliopancreatic diversion. That's a mouthful. So sometimes we just say switch, like uh, that, that makes it a little easier. Um, but that is a more uh, extensive bypass. And that is one where, yes, you would be much more uh, concerned and cognizant of uh, malnourishment and deficiencies. You do with all of them, but that one the most so. Um, and there, but there is a, uh, a modification of it that uh, is uh, single anastomosis duodenoileostomy. And so we call it Sadie for short. It just makes it so much easier, but it's a way that we've modified that where you see some of the great results with the duodenal switch without as many of the digestive issues and deficiencies. And, um, and that's really um, come on strong in the past few years in our bariatric societies and, and how we offer it to patients. I think we've kind of opened up that a little bit more to more patients uh, and rightly so. I mean, it's more, there more options. We can, I think treating more people is the goal in some form or fashion, however we do that. And so finding something that, you know, finding that right procedure for the right person that's the secret. There's not a scientific way, but it's getting to know your patients and really starting to understand what they want, what they're trying to get out of this, what their hopes and dreams are, you know, and sometimes people just want to be able to move better and play with their grandkids. Um, some people just want to be able to get out of a chair easier, right? And I mean, those are great functional goals. And I'll, I mean, it's been many years, but I'll never forget the first patient that came in. It's, it's been at least a little over a decade, but that said, you know what, I can cross my legs now. Like such a measurable goal that is such a um, quality of life and a, even a socially um, functional aspect is very interesting. And it's so fun to hear how patients improve and what they can and can't do and how that changes over time. So. What would you say as your your idea of success when you, you know, see a patient? Are there certain weight loss parameters or weight loss goals that you say, okay, yes, this, this worked. Every patient that comes in, I always ask them, what is your weight loss goal? And I thought it may change, you know, but where are you thinking you want to be? So we get that and we, we write it down. And when they've lost all their weight that they are happy and they want that they've wanted to lose, we come back to that note and say, okay, this is what you said. And, you know, sometimes it's right on the mark. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more because I tell them, don't be afraid to let the goal change. Uh, you may find that you're at a, you're comfortable at a certain weight. You're comfortable in the, in the space that it takes to maintain that certain weight, right? Because maybe to be at a certain weight, they have to have such a high level of exercise and a very restricted diet, but maybe just a few pounds more, they can relax and maybe feel like they have a more comfortable quality of life. And that's important. And so I really, for me, 
if our patients are happy, I'm happy, regardless of a weight goal, regardless. I mean, there are things that you know when success has happened. If the diabetes is in remission, they no longer need their sleep apnea machine, right? Their cholesterol normalizes, their blood pressure normalizes. Um, you know, they lose a, such a significant amount of weight that you think, wow, if I saw you on the street, I may not recognize you now. Um, I mean, those are certainly measurable indicators of success. Yeah, right. But really, it's it's person to person. You know, it has to be. Do you advise or do you ever um, offer patients uh, medication therapy after their surgery? Absolutely. Right. And, and sometimes when those surgeries affect um, certain hormones, some of which we've talked about, ghrelin, leptin, GLP-1, uh, uh, amylin, uh, PYY, there's so many out there. And so some of those uh, hormonal aspects we'll see recur and people will, their appetite will come back. And it's interesting and I don't think we fully know exactly why, but again, if we're treating this as a disease, we have to be ready for anything just like that cardiologist has to be ready with aspirin, a stent, a heart surgery, and moment we have to have all of these tools to say, okay, if someone regains or someone is struggling, you know, it's always easier if we catch them earlier, but add a supplemental uh, medication as an adjunct to surgery to make them successful, to help with appetite suppression, boost to their energy expenditure, right? Um, you know, those things can really pay off. And, and we're seeing this more as uh, combination therapy now, rather than just monotherapy. The more tools you have to offer, I mean, when someone comes in, maybe uh, maybe meds are right now, maybe surgery, this isn't the right time. Uh, and so then we say, okay, well, let's try this first. But then to say, okay, but a full spectrum, if you're struggling, a full spectrum practice, we want to make sure we can meet your need if that's not meeting your need at a certain point. We'd love to hear more about your practice. Um, can you tell um, the listeners and viewers how they can get in touch with you? The practice is Houston Methodist Surgical Associates, Willowbrook, uh, 18220 Tomball Parkway, I believe. But we're in what's called the Hargrave Building, Suite 390. Thank you so much, Dr. Worley. This has been really, really, really amazing for me personally. <laughs> I hope oh, thank you. That's listening to it um, has gained a lot of insight into the um, surgical weight loss and even med you know medication-assisted weight loss process. Um, we're going to put Dr. Worley's information on the link um, for the podcast so anyone can get access and reach out to his cl clinic and um, get in to see him so they can have a transformation of their life. Tired of waiting at the ER? Lifesavers 24-hour emergency room is your number one ER for pediatric and adult medical care. Staffed by board certified physicians with absolutely no wait time. Lifesavers 24-hour emergency room is equipped to handle life-threatening conditions quickly. Your emergency or concern is our priority, and we're here when you need us. Now with three convenient Houston locations, open 24-7 to get you feeling better fast. Our Willowbrook area location is located at the intersection of Highway 249 and 1960. Our Heights area location is in the Garden Oaks Shopping Center at 3820 North Shepherd Drive. Our Summerwood area location is located off of Sam Houston Tollway at West Lake Houston Parkway. Lifesavers 24-hour emergency room is your ER for immediate care. <laughs>